0: Great, and let me also echo Graham's welcome. If you're visiting with us, really warm welcome to you. Um, my name's Pete, the pastor here at the church. Uh, we count it an honour to have you. You're our guest. We hope that you can be encouraged and built up through all that we're going to be doing today. We've been on a journey. We've been working our way through a, a portion in the Bible, which is famously called the Sermon on the Mounts. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, six, and seven. Uh, it's, it's an amazing passage. It's an amazing section of teaching, and it's probably the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus, the most famous one who ever lived. And we are on the last week of that now. We've been going, I think, 36 weeks, and this is the last week. This is actually the last week. I said that it was last week a few weeks ago, but this is definitely the last week in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be going on to uh, study his parables later in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we're doing that later this month, so really excited about that after, after Father's Day. So let's pray, and then we're going to turn to the Bible. God, we acknowledge that you're with us just now. Thank you that we're in your presence. And thank you in your presence, anything can happen. God, you're almighty, and you still are. You don't change. You, the creator, the God of all creation, the one who begun this whole thing, thank you you're with us in this room just now by your spirit, and you know every person here. And I believe you have a plan for their lives. God, I ask you that you'd come by your Holy Spirit and literally you'd open our hearts and open our spiritual eyes to see things and perceive things that we've never seen before. God, would you speak? God, we honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me start by telling you a story about a a Japanese man called Wakasa no Kami. And he was uh, a feudal lord. And he led. It was part of one of the military commanders in Japan, way back in the late 1800s. And the, the story goes as follows, and it's a true story. In 1854, some European ships had come into and, and just stopped just off the coast of Japan. The Japanese, being suspicious, uh, commissions Wakase and his people to go and patrol the shores to keep an eye on the foreign ships. When Mukasi was there with all his men in his military regalia, there was something an item floating in the in the water, and he sent one of his men to go and collect the item. And he brought it back to him, and it was it was a wet, damp, soaked Danish translation of the Bible. Mukasi had no idea what it was, but after further investigation discovered that it was the Bible. He was so curious and intrigued to know what this book was about, he went and found a translation of the same Bible in his own language. After 11 years, he studied the Bible, and one day after 11 years, he turned up at the doorstep of a man called Vernbach, who was the first Protestant missionary in Japan. He turned up in the door with 50 of his men, and he asked Wernbach to baptize him and his 50 men. Vernbach wanted to know about his faith, and uh, Wakasi replied this, I cannot tell you my feelings when, for the first time, I read the accounts of the character and work of Jesus Christ. I've never seen, heard, or imagined such a person. I was filled with admiration, overwhelmed with emotion, and taken captive by the record of his nature and life. I have to tell you, I'm 20 years after having a one to one encounter with this Jesus Christ. I'm 35 now. It happened when I was 15. Every time I study him, every time I look at the Bible, every time I consider him, every time I pray to him, every time I hear his voice, my life changes. I am more in awe of him every day. He captivates my heart. I've loved studying the Sermon on the Mount because it's been about him teaching us about him. We've, our, our hearts have been enlarged. Our eyes have been opened to see things we've never seen before about God and about ourselves. It's been literally transforming. Jesus isn't just a historical figure. He's literally the monarchy of the universe. And he's here now and he's interested in your life. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've finished all the teaching. Jesus has said everything he's had to say. That was the last message to shared. Jesus said, build your life on the rock. That was the last thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But what you find at the end of the passage was the crowd's reaction to the speaker. So now in this message, we're going to swing from the message of the Sermon on the Mount to the one who spoke the message in the first place. It says this in Matthew seven twenty-eight twenty-nine: 29 When Jesus had finished these sayings, that's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel 5, 6, and 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Crowds were gathered on the edge of their seats. They were amazed at Jesus. They were astonished at his teaching. And they acknowledged, this is one who has authority. So we're going to look at, we're going to go on a journey. We're going to look at, what did they mean? What was it about his teaching? What was it about him that communicated this authority, this air of authority? What was it that, who was this teacher? Who was this preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? First of all, let's look at the crowds. It says, the crowds were astonished. Who were the crowd? Well, if you the sermon on the Mount the record of it starts in Matthew's Gospel chapter five. If you want to know who the crowd were, just go the verses before that. In Matthew four, you see who the crowd were, Matthew four, thirty-five. He went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. You imagine that? Don't just skip over words, read what it says healing every disease. Whoa, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by the demons, epileptics, paralytics and he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So who were the great crowds? They were people who had seen what he'd done, heard what he'd been teaching from huge surrounding regions had gathered to hear him teach, and they sat down and listened to him teach the Sermon on the Mount. Now, those regions described there, uh, here's, here's a picture of the, yep, uh, on, on the left here, you see this is the, up, up above Galilee, and that area there is is Syria, and then is the Capolis, and then is over to the west of the Jordan here around, and then there was Judea and Jerusalem there and Samaria. That was the area now what just to give you an idea of the scale of the area i've put it side by side to the same scale um, to the map of scotland so literally the crowds who were the crowds well these were people who've been gathering from way up above galilee to way down below jerusalem literally it's the equivalent of people today gathering from aberdeenshire all the way from newcastle from glasgow from dumfries from edinburgh carlisle dundee all around people gathering now, in a day and age when there was no public transportation, when a day and age when there was no cars, that was a long trek. This was people gathering a long distance to go to the shores of Galilee to hear Jesus teach in this mountainside. These were people who were hungry, desperate to know truth, searching for answers. The people were amazed, the Bible says. Great crowds followed him. How many were in these crowds? Well, we don't know. In this account, it doesn't tell us, but in other accounts, it does tell us how many. And I would guess it's probably similar amounts to this crowd. In one occasion, Jesus fed the five thousands. Another occasion, he fed the four thousands. But the 4 and the five wasn't all the people there. It says Jesus fed the 5,000 men, not including women and children. 4,000 men, not including women and children. So if you add the women and children into it, anything between twelve and 20,000 people was the norm. Kind of stadium crowds, scale of people gathering to hear Jesus. It's like tea in the park. People kind of coming up from all over. Slightly different to tea in the park in many respects. But uh, JC in the park. Uh, People gathering from all around to hear Jesus, uh, but without public transportation. Sometimes traveling days to hear him. And if you look at the account, when Jesus fed the 4,000s, he fed the 4,000 because they'd spent three days listening to him and hadn't eaten you imagine—I mean, you understand how it feels to listen to someone preach for an, an hour, forty minutes, right? You're hardcore. Most people say they don't like people preaching twenty minutes, but people sat and listened to Jesus three days. Oh, I haven't eaten. Oh yeah, three days. But not just adults, kids. Kids sat and listened to Jesus three days. You ever had tr- kids try and sit for three seconds? Three days. I remember when I was preaching in Kenya. I remember arriving in a rural area. We travelled on a four by four into this little hut in the middle of nowhere. And I arrived in this little hut, and it was packed to the walls with about two hundred people. Half of them were kids, and they they just knew the preacher was arriving at some point that night, and they'd been there for hours worshiping already. Kids. When I preached, they sat silently listening. Didn't understand a word I said, but they listened. (laughs) People hungry for truth. And bear in mind, this is a day and age where, you know, you didn't get holiday leave from your job. If you didn't work. You didn't get paid. And in those days, if you didn't get paid, you didn't eat. Literally, people were on the breadline. It was it, it, it was mass poverty in Jesus' time. People were on the breadline, so they knew they're going to take three days out of their work schedule to go and listen to a preacher. They weren't going to earn any money then, and they were probably going to have to go without food. It was a serious commitment. But they knew there was something about this Jesus. There was something so electrifying about Jesus when he taught. There was something so magnetizing about this Jesus that they couldn't miss a moment. Great crowds followed. Tens of thousands of people listening to Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. There's literally no one like Jesus. Down through the ages, there have been great teachers. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and others. And they had their dedicated followers who would spend time with their guru listening but here, Jesus, yes, he had his dedicated followers, the 12, but he also had literally tens of thousands of people who would give huge amounts of time. It wasn't the dedicated elite, it was the common people, the rich and the poor, the old and the young, who came to hear Jesus from all surrounding regions because you just didn't want to miss this. It says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And ever since then, millions have been astonished at him and his teaching. He's one of them. He's one guy commenting on the Sermon on the Mount who, who was also astonished at Jesus's sermon. This is a prominent psychiatrist in 1951, a man called J.T. Uh, Fisher, and he said this, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental health, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out all the excess excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to take these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable living poets, you would have an awkward, incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. He goes on to say, for nearly 2,000 years the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer for the restless and fruitless yearnings, for its its restless and fruitless yearnings. He arrests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and contentment, says this preeminent psychiatrist about the Sermon on the Mount. Millions are in awe of him and his teaching. So what was it about him that they saw these people listening on the mountainside to this teacher? What was it about him that, that spoke of one who had authority that they were astonished by? Well, I'm going to give you three things. First of all, his words came with power. Uh, in Matthew 4, remember the crowds who gathered, we described them a moment ago, came from all the surrounding regions. They'd seen him heal every disease. They saw demon-possessed people literally delivered in front of their eyes. They saw people who had been, who'd been paralytics, unable to walk uh, for you know, some, many times since birth. Walking, muscles forming on their legs, legs growing in front of their eyes. They even saw dead being raised and blind eyes being opened. But Jesus still does that stuff today. They saw this. His words weren't just words, his words came with power. They saw his miracles. Now they heard his teaching, and it was awesome. Both were great. Jesus' words came not just as theories or theoretical thoughts or nice motivational ideas but there was such a reality about them that they could literally bring healing to sick bodies. His words came with power. a similar reaction to the crowds in Capernaum recorded in Mark 1. It says, they came to Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue... W- who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, "'What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? "'Have you come to destroy us? "'I know who you are, the Holy One of God.'" So here, the demons recognizing Jesus as the one who will ultimately be the judge of all demons at the end of time. "'Be quiet,' Jesus says sternly. "'Come out of him.'" The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, "'What is this, a new teaching and with authority?' He even orders evil spirits, and they obey him. See, Jesus' teaching wasn't just words. He had the backing of heaven. His words were evidenced with power. And I believe we're not called to have some Christianity that's just theoretical, just nice ideas, just comforting thoughts. I believe God calls us to live in a reality with him where there are awesome words and awesome acts, great miracles surrounding our lives. It says in Second Timothy 3, warning about the last days, it says in verse 1 and verse 5, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he goes on to describe them. And then in verse 5, he says, people will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. That Paul, writing to Timothy, says, listen, in the last days, there's going to be people who are religious. They kind of say the religious stuff, they go through the religious motions, where's the power? You know, they're saying all the right things. They're ticking all the right boxes. They might even have a sound theology. There's no power. And that's very unlike Jesus. Because Jesus said the right things, and there was power. So we believe in a God who says great things, but also a God who does great things. Is your Christian faith just theoretical? Do you just know stuff about God? Or have you experienced him? Is he a living experience in your life? Have you seen his miracles in your life? If you just know stuff about him, it doesn't mean that you're not saved, but it means that your experience is deficient. Our experience of a God shouldn't just be in words and in knowledge, but with power. Because our God's are powerful gods. Our God shakes buildings, creates worlds, causes the dead to rise, heals sick bodies, opens blind eyes. We powerful gods. And I don't understand that's not comfortable. I understand the idea of just a God that you control and you just know stuff about him. That's nice and comfortable. But a God who's all-powerful and speaks truth and actually touches life and changes things, that's the God of the Bible. Jesus' words just weren't words. They came with power. And notice also that those who hung out with Jesus started reflecting this same thing. Peter and John um, who were close followers of Jesus. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, they went on to be part of that great movement which the Bible calls the church, which today is impacting our world and advancing. Peter and John, one day, they were on the, on the way to the temple to pray. Peter and John went to pray. You remember the song? Yeah. They met a layman on the way. He asked for alms and held out his hands. And this is what Peter did say. Help me. Silver and gold have I, but such as I have given you, in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what they did was, they took the the person who was lame from birth, they said, we don't have money. He asked for arms, and they gave him legs. And uh, he said, I don't have money. And he reached down, and he took him by the hands, and he says, but what we do have, we give you. Notice they didn't even pray for him. They didn't pray, God, would you heal this sick? But they didn't do that. He said, no, what we've got, we're going to give you." And they pulled him to his feet. I had a chicken out before that. <laughs> he said, don't, don't, "Oh no, it didn't work, right?" But they pulled him to his feet. Look at the confidence. And the Bible says God strengthened his feet and ankle bones in that very second. And the guy started dancing. Now he skipped the whole. Le- I mean, kids have to not only get strength in their life, but they've also got to learn balance, right? He, he got that in a second. This is a big miracle. He started dancing and praising God in the temple. And the, G, the chief priests who had just before that crucified the Christ now arrested Peter and John because they were causing a rumpus. And they pulled them in and, they, and Peter and John confidently stood in front of these chief priests who had murderous intentions and they spoke to them. And this is what it says, Acts four thirteen. Now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived and understood that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. You see, you hang out with Jesus. It's not only gonna, you're not only hanging out with the greatest authority ever, but he impacts your life. And he transforms you into someone who starts having authority in the way you speak and in the way you see miracles. I believe God's intention and heart for you as his people is that you know Him. You really know Him. Not head knowledge, but experientially you know Him. And it's through you, He does miracles. Common men, common women, impacting Edinburgh with a very uncommon god The great God who wants to get glory through common people who are yielded to His will. That's what God wants to do. Raise your sights. Raise your expectations. Believe that God wants to do that through uneducated and some educated common people like us. Thank you for your enthusiasm, but that was a good point I made. <laughs> okay, second point is this: he spoke with accuracy. And this is what was this is the air of authority. He spoke with accuracy. It says in verse 29, he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, this is how it starts. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. He sat down on the mountainside and start teaching. Now, in our culture, when we've got something important to say, we stand up. But in that culture, when you had something important to say, the rabbis, the teachers, and the scribes, they sat down and they taught. That's when they made important points. So Jesus was taking on the pose of a teacher. But he was teaching in a way that none of the other teachers were teaching. He had no formal education. He hadn't gone to school he hadn't been mentored by Gamaliel or some of the great Pharisees who were around at the time. And yet, he spoke with more authority than any of the scribes or educated people of his day. Even as a 12-year-old, we get a glimpse into his, his dealings. As a 12-year-old in the temple courts in Luke 2, 46 to 47, you remember the account, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus? That's a bad moment. You know, you don't lose God, right? I entrust you with my son, you know. he always done. And it says this, after three days, they found him, yay, in the temple, sitting among the teachers a 12 year old listening to them and asking them questions. That's humility. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 12-year-old, uneducated, and yet moving with accuracy when it came to truth. You see, publicly, he was bringing to question what the, the religious teachers of his day were saying. And that does need to happen in every generation. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this phrase You have heard that it said, but I say to you. You have heard that it said, and he quotes the scribes, or the rabbis, the teachers of his day. And then he says, But I say to you. And in that moment, he reinforced the word of God. About 500 years before that moment, the Israelites had been taken into captivity in a place called Babylon. In that 70 years of captivity, the the Jews, who used to speak Hebrew, they all almost completely lost their ability to speak that language, and instead they learned and they spoke Aramaic. After the exile, Hebrew among the common people, not among the scholarly, but among the common people, wasn't the normal language of the Jews. Aramaic was. Jesus himself taught in Aramaic. So what happened was this, the scholarly class, the rabbis, the scribes, they understood Hebrew, and the scriptures were in Hebrew. So the common people were dependent on the experts to tell them what the Bible was saying. It was very similar to what was happening in the Middle Ages with the Catholic priests, not giving the common people the Bible, but speaking, you know, it, kind of, it was all in Latin, and only the educated understood it, and therefore it could be easily abused by people claiming God was saying this, when that's nothing what the Bible said. And this is exactly the same situation Jesus, uh, the, the people of Jesus' time were in. And on, after, the, after the captivity, many of the rabbis and the scribes produced their commentaries on the Old Testament, and they produced books like the Mishnah and the, uh, the Gemara and the Talmud of Babylon and the Talmud of Jerusalem. These were books they produced describing, saying, this is how we understand Scripture. It was their interpretation of Scripture. And here was a quotation from uh, the Mishnah. It said this, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Now, all of a sudden we realize that's dangerous territory. And this is what Jesus was up against. So when Jesus said, you have heard that it is said, he was talking about the way the religious people had translated the Bible in a way that was barbaric and wrong and warped to produce what they wanted to happen rather than what God wanted to happen. And Jesus was refuting what they said, and Jesus was saying, no, but I say to you. And Jesus would reinforce the word of God. Jesus said what God said, not what people wanted to hear. Jesus had authority because he spoke God's words. You want to have authority in life? then you've got to line your life up, not with your opinion of the Bible, but with what the Bible actually says. You want to have authority in your family, then allow what God says to be your rule of thumb. You want to have authority in your business. Allow what God says about business to be your basis. You want to have authority as a husband or a wife, then forget your legacy. Forget how you've seen it done by others. Look at what God says, the author of life. Look at what his handbook says about how to do life. And Jesus simply spoke the words of God, and therefore it came with authority. And that was not what the scribes were doing, and therefore he had authority, but they didn't. Being a person of authority is not someone who says, I've mastered the Bible. Being a person of authority is someone who says, the Bible has mastered me it's conquered me and i'm humble as a result that's what it means to have authority in the sight of god it's like the captain of the ship who one day in the darkness coming through the mist he sees a light in the distance he says to a signalman send a signal alter your course 10 degrees to the south within seconds a reply came back saying no no you alter your course 10 degrees to the north the captain was infuriated he said to the signalman okay tell him i am a captain Alter your course 10 degrees to the south. The reply came back saying, I am First Seaman Jones. Uh, you alter your course 10 degrees to the south. He was so angry, he thought, I don't know. What I, he knew what would strike fear in the heart of this other man. He said, I am a captain of a destroyer. You alter your course 10 degrees to the south. The reply came back quick as anything I'm a lighthouse. You alter your course 10 degrees to the north. You see, arguing with gods is just like a ship arguing with a lighthouse. No, no, you move. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, all right, no, I think I know how to do life better than you, creator of life and author and all wise God. You're numpty. Wake up. That's why you've been failing all over the place. Do it God's way. Build according to God's truth. Base your life on that you're basing your life on the ultimate authority. And Jesus spoke with authority because he spoke the words of God. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. Astonished at his teaching. Astonished at his teaching because his words came with power. Astonished at his teaching because his words were accurate. But this is the biggest reason I believe. They were astonished at his teaching because he was claiming certain things about himself that were astonishing. I'm going to take you on a quick journey through all the things we've covered in the last 12 months, some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to pull out some of the remarkable things Jesus claimed about himself and I want you just to look at it and see why they were astonished. He was not claiming to be a man, he was claiming to be God the creator in the flesh. God the Son, fully one with God the Father in the power of God the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He spoke with authority about himself. So let's look at Matthew 5, verse 12, 28, 32, 34, 39, 44. Six times Jesus said, You remember? Uh, six times Jesus said, You've heard that it's said, but I say unto you. This even that statement was so weighty. You see, the rabbis and the Pharisees in Jesus' time would say things like this. They would say, there is a teaching that says. They would quote other rabbis. They would quote the Mishnah. And they would comment that when they did their teaching, they would say, there is a teaching that says. That was how they spoke. The prophets in the Old Testament said, thus says the Lord. But Jesus said, I say to you, he was speaking as God to the people. He wasn't like the Pharisees quoting someone else. He wasn't like the prophets speaking on behalf of God. He was saying, I, as God, say to you. And that was very different to anything they had heard. Furthermore, and let's skip ahead to Matthew 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to suffer and die for his own opinions, but to expect others to go on and suffer and die for a mere man who had opinions. But if indeed he is God in the flesh, and people are saying, no, I follow this Jesus. He's my savior. I believe he's God incarnate. I believe he's the son of God who died on the cross to save me, and he rose again, and now the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rule and reign eternally, and I'm theirs. I will never give up on them no matter if you hold a pistol to my head, I will not give up and renounce them. Then that's legitimate. A mere man couldn't have said that. You know, say all kinds of evils against you because of me? That would be an arrogant claim if he wasn't God himself. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice it doesn't say I was not... He didn't say, I was born to fulfill them. He says, I've come. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. I've come. He wasn't born. He, he came. Jesus pre-existed his birth. You and I were born. We had a beginning. Now, we are eternal now. We have a, we'll have no end. We will be somewhere for eternity, either with God or without God. And that's everything to do with your response to Jesus. But we had a beginning. Now, Jesus, unlike us, had no beginning it's one of the things that makes him God. He is the eternal one. He always has been. He always will be. He came into this world. He wasn't born. He entered into this world. He pre existed prior to birth, unlike us. He always has existed and always will exist. Same yesterday, today, and forever. But furthermore, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And the, the reality is, if you look at the law and the prophets, you dig out your Old Testaments and read the pages, you will find hundreds of prophecies predicting the coming of this preexistent one into the world. The creator himself was going to become uh, God with us, Emmanuel, born to a virgin, Isaiah says. It predicted how he was going to die on a cross and why he was going to die on the cross. It talks about where he would be born, how he would live in the political environment into which he would be born. It describes and predicts with great detail the global impact that Jesus and his movement would have on planet Earth, this preexistent one entering into human form, who was going to change everything, the Messiah. It was all prophesied, and Jesus said, I've come to fulfill that. He also fulfilled that in that this. He ticked all the boxes as far as the law is concerned, and that makes him very different to us because you and I have failed on every count when the, the moral law no, it says, do not commit adultery. We've done that. It says, do not commit murder. We've done that. Whether we've done it in practice or in our heads, we've done that. We've, we've, we've lied. We've stolen. We've worshipped idols. And it might not have been a carved idol. It might, you might just worshipped your girlfriend or your money or your car. But you've worshipped tons of stuff, yourself included, other, anything other than God. We've been thoroughly idolaters. We've failed in every count as far as the law is concerned. But Jesus didn't. When he said, I've come to fulfill the law, he meant it, in this sense, Every area of the law I have completely adhered to. The only human being who ever has. And as a man who is sinless and pure as far as the law was concerned, he therefore became our substitute when he died on that cross. Us sinners who have failed in every count as far as the law is concerned, he died the law-abiding one on behalf of the lawless one, us. And he became our sinless sacrifice, he is your only Savior and your only hope of eternity. He died in your place and rose again. He's alive now, and he wants to be part of your life. He wants you to have an encounter with him today. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at what he's saying. Don't just skip over it. Look at what he's saying. Look at the implications of what he's saying. He said, you'll say to me, did you not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and form miracles in your name? You don't cast out demons and perform miracles and prophesy in the name of a man. You do that stuff in the name of God, Jesus Furthermore, we understand the word lords is the Greek word kuros, which means supreme authority, master, God. And Jesus is saying, you, you, you're gonna stand before me and call me Lord, God, Master. This wasn't just a guy. He said this. He also is claiming that he will be the one who will pronounce judgment over all humanity. That one day everyone in this room We'll see him. We'll see this same guy. We're going to see him. And we'll call him Lord as well. He is the one appointed to judge all men. The man appointed to judge all men. The one who is the image of God to judge all those who are created in the image of God. And that's what will happen. One day, this young 30-year-old, younger than me, carpenter, uneducated guy from Nazareth a hillbilly area in the north where they said in John one forty six, can anything good come out of Nazareth it was a it was a byword it was anyone who came from there was kind of to be looked down upon this guy this young guy this carpenter this artisan this laborer one day you'll stand before him and be judged by that young guy this young guy whose appearance was completely ordinary, nothing spectacular, says in Isaiah fifty three, verse two, he had no former majesty that we look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He just looked ordinary or even bland. Totally normal human being. Yet he will be the one who you will stand before and be judged. This carpenter sitting on a hillside speaking a sermon you and I will see him on a throne, the throne, the throne of the universe, as the judge. He will judge all the nations. He is none other than God the creator. It says in John 12, 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. If you read the verses around that, we don't have time just now, but if you read the verse around that, you will see just before that, John had been quoting Isaiah, And he was quoting from Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6, the bit he quoted from, was Isaiah's response to his revelation of God. And John's saying, Isaiah said these things because he saw who? Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Let's read that bit. Let's, let's, Let's see what Isaiah saw. Let's see Jesus in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is the same person we're talking about here, folks. Above him stood seraphim, who had, each of them had six wings, two with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And the one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among the midst of the people with unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, Jesus, the Lord of hosts. Man, this Jesus, this carpenter, this 30 year old on a hillside, is the one who's on the throne ruling and reigning sufficiently this universe. What does this tell you about God? Jesus, in an interaction with one of his disciples, recorded in John 14, verse 8, said this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What does that tell you about God? There was a kid one day and his, he was drawing a picture. And his mom said to him, uh, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. I said, how, you, how can you draw God? You don't know what God looks like. I said, just hang around for a bit, you will. And that's what it's like with Jesus. This God who's a mystery, this God who's unapproachable, this God who we feel insecure before, all of a sudden, Makes himself plain. All of a sudden, we understand what he's like. Jesus said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father," he said, "are one." You want to know what the Father thinks about justice issues? Look at what Jesus did about justice issues. You don't want to know what the Father thinks about sinners? Look how Jesus dealt with sinners. You want to know what the Father thinks about sickness? Look at Jesus dealt with the sick, he's perfect theology. Billy Graham, in an article in the Regis Digest, said this, I have never forgotten the glow in the face of the man who came to me. He came to see me a long time ago. All my life, he said, I would felt that God was high and holy, unreachable. It's hard to understand a God like that, let alone love him. But when you, Billy Graham, when you showed me Jesus and quoted his words... He that has seen me has seen the Father. And like a flash it came to me that if the if God is like him who walked the common ways of man, he loved and served the weakest of his creatures, and whose great heart bursts on the cross to redeem us from our sins, then he can have my life, he can have my soul, he can have my all. I made that gift and I'll never take it back. Jesus is God. And then just recently we looked at the verse, at the very last thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 4, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I have to say I believe Jesus was fully qualified to say this. You know, you build your life in my words, Jesus said, you are like someone building on a solid foundation. Now a man couldn't have said that. Only God could say that. And John, the the apostle, writes his gospel, and he begins his gospel in John 1, verse 1. And he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. We believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see Jesus, the word who was with God and who is God. And at the beginning of time, through his words, this world came into existence. So you better believe that you build your life on his words, you're building on a good foundation. It was his words that spoke the world into being in the first place. So you can base your life on his words. You can build your life solidly. You can build your future. You can build all your ambitions. You can build everything about your life in this life, on his words, he's a solid foundation. Storms will come. You'll remain solid because he's outstanding. No wonder at the end of his teaching did it say, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. If you're astonished at Jesus, if you're astonished at his teaching, then here's what we should do. I want to end this series by going back to the very beginning of what we looked at in Matthew 5 here is the only legitimate response to someone like Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're poor in spirit because you know I can't do it without you. You're poor in spirit because you know I need, I am poor without God. Well, you realize that, yours is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's saying, do you know what? You're holy, you're true. And like Isaiah, when he saw God, what was his response? It wasn't, hey, yo God, it was, woe is me. I'm, I'm done for because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord. And, and, and the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn because you're realizing, man, I'm a sinner. There's nothing in me that can get me to heaven. I need God's. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You've wept over your sin. You said, I don't justify, I don't argue away. Well, who, who are you to judge about my sin is? I'm not, but God is. And before God, you repent. And you say, man, I need God. And you repent of your sin. And the comfort is this. He forgives you. It's not just a temporary comfort. It's an eternal comfort. He forgives you. And then it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's, that's the journey you've been on. You've been, you've been you're saying, I can't do this without, it's not like proud who say, I can do this without God. You're meek, you're saying, I need God. And meek people bring their abilities and their powers under God's lordship. And according to the Bible, you're the kind of person who's going to inherit the earth. And then this journey continues and it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Having been forgiven, having turned your life over to God, do you know what is in your heartbeat now? I want to do the will of God. I want to please my God. I want to live for my Father. I want to honor Him. You'll be satisfied. You'll be on a journey, but you'll be satisfied. And then it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. You've already been shown mercy by God. He's forgiven your sins. And as a result, you are now a merciful individual to others. This impact that you've had with God is now impacting the way you're treating other people. You are showing mercy to people just as God has shown mercy to you. And then it says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And you're a new person and from the heart you're crying out and you've got love for God and he's your agenda in life and you will see God. It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And you see, now that you've had peace made with God, it's not so much that you're reconciling to to people on earth, It's more that you're telling people on earth about the God who they can be reconciled to. You become a peacemaker, an envoy of that peace on behalf of God, telling people about the peace they can have with God. Then it goes on as as someone who's on that envoy, sharing your faith about God, telling people in the city, you can be reconciled to God, you can have peace with God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because as you go out and tell people, the fact is, some will hate you. Some will renounce you. And some will say, you've just given me a lifeline. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and say, utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were for you. The fact is, as you live for God, it isn't necessarily the popular way. And you're not going out your way to be offensive. But if you're living for God and sharing your faith with other people, Some people might reject you. We've all experienced that. But that's how it's going to be. But then it says you're the salt of the earth. That means you flavor things around you. That means you preserve things. That means, church, we're here not just to exist and sing songs. We're here to influence a city. Make a difference in the communities in which we're living. You are the light of the world. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We have got one big agenda in life now, and it's this. We want to do stuff on this earth that brings him glory. We want to demonstrate this incredible love of God that so captivated our hearts that we want to spend the rest of our life demonstrating that love to other people. And by that, he'll get glory. The tension the glory will go to him, our awesome Savior, who we're astonished about, and we just want the world to know about him, make him famous. So Lord Jesus Christ, we honor you today. I want to say thank you so much for what you taught. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the truths that we found contained in this remarkable section of the Bible. God, thank you for the journey you've been taking us on as individuals and as a, as a gathered church over this last year. Thank you, God, for what you've spoken to our hearts. Thank you for the many lives who have been changed. Thank you for the miracles, sick bodies that have been healed even people who are demon-possessed who have been delivered during this season. I want to thank you, God. You're a great God. And God, we want our response to be appropriate to you. We, like the crowds, are in awe of you. I pray, God, in us you'd find that same hunger like there was in those crowds in those regions around which you lived, Lord Jesus, where people were willing to come for, for distances just to hear you. I pray in our lives there be a hunger for you Like that, there'd be a a worship of you. There'd be an astonishment of you like there was in those people. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are the one who spoke with authority. Thank you. Your authority wasn't just words, but it also came with power. And I thank you. You're the same today. Thank you, God. When you speak today, you back up your words with power. And my prayer today, God, in this gathering, if the sick here today, God, I pray as they get prayed for at the end of this gathering, I pray that your power would flow And heal sick bodies and turn situations around for the glory of God. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your words come with power. and, And when we hang out with you, all of a sudden we can see that same power flowing through our lives. And I pray, let that be the testimony of this church that God gets glory through us because of the miracles, not just that happen in the services, but happen in living rooms, and happen in schools, and in universities, and in workplaces. And at lunch breaks, and on the street, and over phone calls, even reading emails. God, you do great miracles through this precious people here. And Jesus, thank you so much that you spoke with accuracy. Lord, let our lives not be based on human opinion, but let our lives be based on God's truth. Let that be the foundation. And Jesus, thank you you spoke with authority about yourself. stand in awe of you the one who was fully man fully God thank you you rule and reign resurrected from the dead we honour you in this place God we want you to have your way in our lives I pray for anyone here today Lord who doesn't yet know you as their God and saviour I pray today you empower them You'd open their eyes and let them, let them get it. Let them get it, God. Let their heart be wide open to you. And I pray you would do a work in their lives just now. So just as we close, I'm gonna give you that opportunity. Just I encourage all of you in this room. You've heard things today and over the last 12 months. Take a moment in God's presence just now. Make some decisions. Pray back your response to him. While people are doing that, I'm going to specifically give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you know that you've never committed yourself to really being a follower of Jesus, you've never fully given your heart and life to Him and embraced what He did for you on the cross. If that's you today, I'm pleading with you for your sake and for His name's sake commit yourself to him just as we're ending this service I'm going to give you that opportunity if you're saying Peter I want to commit myself to him and I know it's right and I'm willing to follow him for the rest of my life then I invite you just now just to pray with me repeat this prayer after me under your breath just let this be your heart's cry to him and in this prayer you'll be committing yourself to being his follower you'll be putting your faith in him And you will be asking him to be the Lord of your life. So that's you. You want to pray that prayer. You repeat it after me just now. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross so I could be forgiven and saved. Thank you, you rose again the third day. Thank you, you're alive right now. I believe in you and right now I commit my life to you. Forgive me for all my sins and give me a new start, I pray. Jesus, be the lord of my life, of my future, of every area in my life. Thank you God for hearing my prayer and for accepting me today as your child. Okay, I'd love to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer just there. If you prayed the prayer, if that was in your heart, you repeated that prayer after me and you really meant it, I'd love the privilege of praying for you. Just while everyone else is praying, can you identify yourself to me by raising your hand just all over the auditorium? Thanks, thanks. Wherever you are, put your hand up. Thank you prayed that prayer. Is anyone like that today? Anyone else? Thanks. Okay, God, for those folks who put their hands up and for the many in this room who prayed that prayer and they didn't put their hands up, you heard the prayer. And God, my prayer for them now is that God, they would get it. I pray They would get you in their life in a big way. I pray right now, you by your spirit would just flood their being with your love and your goodness. I pray, God, let this be the beginning of a new life for them. Let them never be the same again. And let their testimony be that God changed my life. I'm asking it in Jesus' name. Thank you so much, God. Thank you so much friends who prayed that prayer before you go we have a team of people who are a prayer team they would love to get a chance to pray for you and one of them will come and see you at the ends and offer to pray with you again if you'd like that okay so uh, don't be shocked when they come to you let's stand let's worship our god